0: The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership in warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, today is April 15th, 2020, and on behalf of the Director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2020 Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world in our very first live stream lecture event. Remember that you can submit a question for our Q&A at the end of the lecture by either emailing the main USAHEC email address or posting to the comment thread for this event on our Facebook page. The USAHEC and the US Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the war-fighting institutions of land power. It's my great honor tonight to introduce tonight's speaker. Dr. Christian Keller is the Dwight D. Eisenhower Chair of National Security and Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the United States Army War College. Previously, he taught at the US Army Command and General Staff College, Dickinson College, Gettysburg College, and the University of Jena, Germany. He is the author and the co-author of numerous scholarly articles and books focusing on the ethnic experience and the American Civil War. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Dr. Chris
2: Keller. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate very much that kind introduction and uh, appreciate also very much uh, you and Shannon taking your valuable evening hours this evening uh, to be with us uh, to do this presentation. Uh, It's always an honor to come back to uh, AHEC and give a presentation. Uh, I've done this a few times, and every time it is truly a privilege. Uh, This is one of the most amazing historical repositories and uh, institutions in the world, particularly for the U.S. military. So what I would like to do uh, is introduce the four main theses of my book, and if we could move the slide, uh, that will... uh, facilitate this, and uh, this is the the title of my book, and uh, we're going to be talking about a major component of the book uh, this evening, about the creation of Confederate strategy in the East uh, between 1862 and 1863. Uh, Before I get into the strategic dimensions uh, of uh, one of my major theses, I'd like to talk about the book overall and about uh, the four primary theses that I arrived at uh, in uh, the great partnership. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the reality uh, of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson as two of the great Confederate chieftains uh, in the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, They may not be as aware of the reality of the close personal friendship that the two generals enjoyed, uh, which was documented at the time uh, during the war and in numerous post-war accounts, some of which we have to be careful about because of the influence of what we call the lost cause. And uh, that is a a genre of writing that occurred after the Civil War in which many former Confederates uh, wrote uh, about why the Confederacy was defeated and came up with uh, many different answers for that. Uh, We have to be careful with uh, the lost cause writings after the war, because sometimes they're a bit biased. And I'd be happy to answer questions on that uh, in the Q&A. But the wartime sources, as well as the reputable post-war sources not tainted by the lost cause uh, ideology, both have told us that Lee and Jackson were close. Uh, And we can definitely understand uh, the significance of that closeness if we understand what exactly Uh, the two men were able to accomplish during their partnership together. It was not during the entire Civil War. It was only for about one year uh, that Lee and Jackson worked together, and it was the most uh, successful uh, operational and strategic year for the Army of Northern Virginia and indeed for the Confederacy overall. So the first of my four theses in the book is pretty straightforward. It's based on the close relationship that the two men enjoyed. Uh, previous authors have commented that uh, they had a close professional relationship, and uh, we do know that. Uh, but there in the historical record, for anyone to see, uh, have, uh, has been this, this other reality, and that is that uh, the two men were personally quite close. And they were close not only because they enjoyed each other's company uh, and uh, shared similar sentiments uh, about uh, the fate of their country, but also uh, they shared a deep commitment to evangelical Protestantism, particularly the idea of divine providence. Uh, This indicated that uh, all things worked on earth according to God's plan for good, And when bad things happened, uh, it was to bring mankind back to where he was supposed to be. Uh, And uh, they both believed this very, very deeply. And uh, I make uh, a lot of discussion in the book about this uh, religious connection between Lee and Jackson, uh, which has been out there as well, which greatly undergirded the personal friendship of the two men, which bloomed particularly during the winter of 1862 and 1863 between the battles of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. The second big thesis uh, that I argue uh, in the work uh, is the reality that the best Confederate strategy existed existed between the the two men, and they were able to uh, come up with this strategy essentially by themselves. Uh, and uh, you could probably br- bring the, uh, the camera back on me, uh, that would be fine. And that might be surprising to some of our listeners to, to hear this, uh, that uh, Lee and Jackson together developed strategy. Jackson is often thought of as simply an operator or a tactician, uh, called Lee's right arm by Lee himself. But Jackson, I discovered in the course of my research, was much more than that. He thought at the strategic level. Uh, and was himself a strategic level thinker as we teach strategy today at the Army War College. And this is not transposing modern theory onto a 19th century person. Uh, This is simply looking at uh, what the historical record offers us about Jackson's uh, uh, thinking. And I'll explain in greater detail exactly what he did think and how it influenced Robert E. Lee uh, and in turn how the two worked together uh, in developing this theater strategy for the Confederacy. The third great thesis uh, has to do with uh, the loss of Stonewall Jackson uh, to the Confederate nation overall and what it meant to people at the time. After the war, a great deal of literature arose in the lost cause genre, uh, lamenting the death of Jackson as one of the great turning points of the war and that uh, the Confederacy's fate was sealed because Jackson died. That was one of the tropes uh, that were brought out by many authors. Well, I looked beyond that and found that indeed, the death of Jackson did mean a great deal to the people of the Confederacy, uh, to Robert E. Lee personally, and also to uh, uh, many people who were observing this afar, uh, such as northerners and Europeans. Practically everybody in private letters and diaries uh, and in newspaper editorials from the time uh, understood what the death of Jackson meant Uh, for Robert E. Lee and his command team and also for the Confederacy's uh, chances overall to achieve their policy goal of independence. And then the fourth thesis uh, last but certainly not least uh, is a discussion about what exactly uh, it means to be a strategic advisor and a strategic leader and I spend a great deal of time talking about this uh, throughout the pages of the book and the significance of that unique bond that needs to exist between a strategic leader and his advisor, or his advisors, as the case uh, may be. Robert E. Lee was gifted in that he had three of those advisors. Jackson became principal among them before he died. The other two were James Longstreet and J.E.B., or Jeb Stuart, chief of the Confederate cavalry. And Lee did take counsel from all of them. Uh, primarily from Jackson and Longstreet, but some, from t- time to time from Stork as well, who was significantly junior uh, to Robert E. Lee, but he was the intelligence gatherer, so what he said mattered as well. This command team that developed under Robert E. Lee uh, was almost unbeatable for a period of time. There was certainly nothing that the Union opponent could come up with to meet it or match it, uh, during that, that period uh, between 1862 and 1863, the Army of the Potomac had uh, a series of, uh, of uh, commanders that rotated in and out, uh, a revolving door, if you will, and none of them could match the prowess of this command team that Lee uh, had built uh, with Jackson, Stewart, and Longstreet. Once that command team was broken with the death of Jackson, it did not function nearly as well And the results were fairly uh, cataclysmic for the Confederacy, as uh, we will discuss. So those are my four principal theses of the book. uh, And uh, I uh, will focus now primarily on the strategic aspect uh, of the Lee-Jackson relationship and how important it actually was for the fate of the Confederacy. Uh, Let's go to the next slide, please. So what was the national strategic situation uh, at this point in the American Civil War? Well, it was the second full year of the war, uh, and we have the battles of Second Manassas, Antietam and Fredericksburg uh, having occurred, uh, and, uh, of course, Second Manassas, one of the great resounding victories of the Army in Northern Virginia, Fredericksburg as well. Antietam, or Sharpsburg as it's called in the south, not as much. And it uh, was a tactical draw, but a strategic defeat for Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy uh, because after, of course, Antietam, Abraham Lincoln, the Union president, will issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Antietam was the first attempt of the Lee Jackson command team to get into the North and uh, do some things, which I'll talk about here uh, in a moment. By the time of Christmas 1862, one could argue that in the East, in the Eastern Theater of Operations, the Confederacy is therefore slightly winning because of the Army of Northern Virginia and its superlative command team that I have mentioned. But in the West, it was a different story. Vicksburg was threatened, Tennessee was two thirds gone, fallen to uh, the Union, Missouri was all but lost, the border state. Arkansas and Louisiana were half-occupied by federal forces. It was a fairly dim picture out in the West, uh, and therefore, I think we could agree that the Union was winning the war in the West. It also had the naval blockade, which was hitting very hard against the southern ports and uh, the Confederacy's ability to trade with foreign powers. The Emancipation Proclamation uh, was an incredible diplomatic informational coup Uh, which Abraham Lincoln uh, capitalized upon, as I indicated, after the Great Battle of Antietam. And it was diplomatic because what it did is it ensured that England would stay out of the war in a de facto sense. Uh, Prior to this, uh, England was wavering on whether or not to recognize the Confederacy uh, as an independent sovereign nation. After emancipation, uh, the chance of that is very small. Uh, So the Union is winning diplomatically and informationally and it is winning militarily in the Western Theater. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson assessed this situation after the Battle of Fredericksburg and they began to understand together as partners in command that if they didn't do something soon the Confederacy was probably going to, as E.P. Alexander put it, totter to its destruction. Uh, They needed to therefore take the initiative The problem was that, before they could take the initiative, uh, General Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker of the Union Army of the Potomac seized the operational initiative in the east and got the jump on Lee and his army uh, just south of Fredericksburg, where they had been in winter encampments. For the first time in his military career, Robert E. Lee was outflanked, and he was outnumbered over two to one by the massive Army of the Potomac that crossed the rivers Uh, of the Rappahannock and the Rapidan in late April, uh, 1863. And this is the setup for the great Chancellorsville campaign. I would like to uh, make it known that uh, James Longstreet, one of Lee's other principal subordinates, is not around for this campaign and he's on detached duty uh, near Petersburg uh, with two of his best divisions. Uh, That means that Lee and Jackson will have to fight the Chancellorsville campaign without Longstreet and his men, which was quite a handicap. Uh, As many of our listeners will know, this was uh, quite a coup that they were able to pull off a victory uh, with that reduced uh, uh, army that they then had to work with. Here we see some pictures taken during the war of the Antietam battlefield afterwards. Uh, there by Alexander Gardner, the famous uh, photographer, and you'll see uh, the famous iconic photo of the Dunker Church uh, down below. Uh, these are in the public domain. And uh, this was a battle that was supposed to represent the first attempt of the Army of Northern Virginia to get into the north. So to begin to turn to our discussion of the strategic and and high operational partnership that Lee and Jackson created, uh, I would uh, have us be taking a look at these pictures a little bit. This was what ended up happening, but it was not what Lee and Jackson had envisioned. Uh, We do believe that Robert E. Lee considered getting into Pennsylvania during the Antietam campaign, and that's something that many uh, of our listeners will be familiar with, but he was stopped by George McClellan and the Army of the Potomac uh, at Antietam uh, on September 17th, 1862. Stonewall Jackson, well before this time, had advocated bringing a hard war into the North. And this was part of his strategic thinking that I alluded to earlier. Stonewall Jackson, even after the Battle of First Manassas in July 1861, advocated for a quick incursion into Pennsylvania and uh, to burn northern areas of commerce, and to uh, attack uh, the northern infrastructure as much as possible. And he indicated this in a series of letters to Robert E. Lee, even while he was fighting the famous Valley Campaign of May and June 1862. And indeed, what Jackson had hoped might happen is he could clear the valley and then march north with a reinforced army Uh, up into where uh, Carlisle and the Army War College is now situated, into the Cumberland Valley, which is the Shenandoah Valley extended northward. It's a natural invasion route. Jackson had a member of his staff uh, who had spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania before the war. His name was Jedediah Hotchkiss. And so Jackson knew that he'd be able to operate in Pennsylvania uh, with fairly good intelligence and he believed that that would change the character of the war. Robert E. Lee agreed, and this is in the public record, in, in uh, the official records, and indeed Lee convinced Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president and the National Command Authority of the Confederacy, uh, that going into the North would be a good idea. But before Lee could dispatch enough reinforcements to, to Jackson for him to embark upon this uh, idea, Uh, the Union Army of the Potomac started advancing up the Virginia Peninsula towards Richmond, endangering the rebel capital, and that forced Lee to call Jackson East to help defend Richmond. The series of battles called the Seven Days ensued, and in those seven days, uh, Stonewall Jackson underperformed. He did not do very well tactically. Uh, We do believe he was tired and worn out from the Valley Campaign that had literally just finished, and uh, Robert E. Lee was disappointed in this performance. And Jackson therefore had to redeem his reputation with Lee. The second Manassas campaign would be his first opportunity and uh, he actually did redeem his reputation fairly well with Robert E. Lee by the conclusion of that climactic campaign, considered one of Lee's greatest victories. But it was in the Antietam campaign that Jackson really shone and uh, vindicated his position. Uh, All the while, he and Lee are spending time together getting to know each other, and a friendship is beginning to bloom, despite Jackson's blundering in the seven days. Lee is regaining professional respect for Stonewall, and uh, Stonewall, in turn, has incredible respect for Robert E. Lee, saying, uh, supposedly, I would follow him blindfolded. These are the Union opponents, uh, who Lee and Jackson uh, had the privilege of fighting. Uh, Obviously, this is in the pre-Ulysses S. Grant era and the pre-George Gordon Meade era. Uh, We have George McClellan there, and we have uh, Fitz John Porter, who was one of his division commanders who fought very well for McClellan on the peninsula. John Pope, defeated at 2nd Manassas. Ambrose Burnside defeated at Fredericksburg, Joseph Hooker defeated at Chancellorsville, and then the final gentleman there, Oliver Otis Howard, commanding the Union 11th Corps at Chancellorsville, which took the brunt of Jackson's famous flank attack. Uh, I bring this slide up to remind everybody that it took two to tango, and so the Confederate command team of Lee and Jackson, complemented by Stewart and Longstreet, could not have done as well as it did without the cooperation of these gentlemen here, who often made mistakes which the Confederate command team was able to monopolize upon, and indeed they did. The top picture in this slide shows Stonewall Jackson leading a church service in his own camp, indicating the deep religious fervor uh, that strongly uh, uh occupied Jackson's mind uh very much throughout uh, his uh, years of command in uh, the army of northern virginia uh it was not a crazy uh, uh off the wall christian belief though as i write in the book jackson was a little bit off to the extreme on the spectrum but many americans at the time were fervent believers uh in uh, evangelical protestantism dis- regardless of their uh, of their denomination Uh, He was a little bit on the one edge of it, but he was not crazy uh, as uh, some recent writers have made him out to be. He was very fervent. Robert E. Lee would not be quite as far along the spectrum as Jackson was, but he shared with him, as I indicated, this deep sense of religious faith, and it was a glue that helped bond the two men uh, in friendship. The bottom picture shows Moss Neck Manor, which is uh, south of Fredericksburg, and for the early part of the winter of 1862 to 63, Jackson had his headquarters on the plantation grounds. This map shows us the three main areas of consideration prior to the Chancellorsville campaign. Where the Confederacy is in trouble. Number one represents the Vicksburg area. Number two, in uh, southern Tennessee and northern Alabama and Georgia, uh, you have The uh, issue of defending Chattanooga and trying to keep the Federals out of the Deep South, Uh, how could this be done? Braxton Bragg, the Confederate commander of the Army of Tennessee in that area, outnumbered, and it's only a matter of time until he gets pushed back. So believed the Confederate National Command Authority in Richmond. And then, of course, closer to home, option number three, uh, remain doing something in the East, Uh, perhaps uh, a new campaign Uh, in the East to try to remedy the mistakes that were made in the Antietam campaign of the previous fall. These are the options that the Confederate leadership is thinking about in the winter of 1862 and 1863. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson are also thinking about these, particularly Lee. Jackson pushing for his favorite adventure to get into the North and to wreak havoc on the Northern infrastructure. Uh, He began to believe that the the greatest target that uh, beckoned in Pennsylvania were the coal mines east of the Susquehanna River and the capital of Harrisburg. Uh, And he thought that by burning out those coal mines, uh, he would reduce the ability of the North to uh, move its armies and its navies. uh, Because they were reliant on steam power in the form of locomotives and in the form of steam turbines in the blockading fleet. Uh, that uh, kept the Confederacy from trading with Europe. Jackson therefore is thinking strategically, I would argue, because he's thinking about the strategic means of the Union. Fully 70 percent of the Norse coal came out of uh, just a few coal mines in Pennsylvania. So if they had been successfully attacked and burned out, uh, who knows what might have happened. Jackson is thinking this way. He also wanted to disrupt uh, the railroad heads in Harrisburg, cut the railroad lines that linked the New England states with the Midwest, and possibly march on Philadelphia. Uh, very interesting, radical ideas of a hard war, which many, in many ways uh, presume and, and foreshadow the hard war that will actually be unleashed, ironically, on the Confederacy by Ulysses S. Grant and William T. Sherman uh, just a year or so later. And you can bring the camera back to me now. So when we think about the Lee-Jackson relationship right before the Battle of Chancellorsville, there are a few points I would like to emphasize. And for my War College students who are watching now for the War College community and for Civil War buffs all around the world, uh, I would like to make it very clear uh, that Stonewall Jackson by this point in the war is Lee's chief strategic operational and tactical advisor. He's not just his right arm on the battlefield but he is also thinking strategically and he's talking to Robert E. Lee frequently about these strategic thoughts of taking the war into the north, crippling northern means, and trying to bring the war to a conclusion. Jackson understands, as does Lee, that the war is just about lost in the West at this point and if the Confederacy is gonna pull out a victory it needs to be done in the Eastern theater. How much Robert E. Lee absorbed Jackson's thoughts verbatim is impossible to say from the historical record. There is no smoking gun that I was able to uncover in my research that indicated that uh, uh, Lee believed that there had to be absolutely another invasion of the North to implement Jackson's ideas. But there is so much smoke that roils and coils around Uh, this idea and so much evidence from the staff members of Lee and Jackson during the war itself that indicate that indeed the two were planning what would become later the Great Pennsylvania campaign in the winter of 1862 and 63. So Jackson is advising Lee and counseling him and Lee is listening, discarding some ideas, accepting others, and we do know that Jackson orders a map of the uh, northern Uh, part of the the Shenandoah Valley and the Cumberland Valley in Pennsylvania to be made in the winter of 1862-63 by Jedediah Hotchkiss, his staff member who had spent time in the North uh, prior to the war and knew the area. Uh, And I'll show you a picture of that map shortly. We also know that they met several times privately and that staff members recorded in their diaries and in wartime letters about those meetings and that Lee went to Richmond for a major strategic conference in March of 1863, not just in May and June, which are the conferences that are well known that uh, uh, came before the Gettysburg Campaign as it will, be, as it will become known. Uh, in March, Lee goes over to Richmond and starts talking to Jefferson Davis. It's quite possible that he was talking to them there about what needed to be done Uh, to bring the war into the north uh, as soon as as the roads would dry and they could start uh, uh, crossing the rivers. The problem was that Longstreet wasn't there to join them. Longstreet was in Southside, Virginia, not far from Petersburg, as I indicated. Uh, And he is gathering supplies, much needed for the Army in Northern Virginia, to be able to subsist. And without Longstreet's two divisions, Lee could not possibly embark upon an offensive campaign. So he's waiting for Longstreet to get back. Longstreet will not get back in time before Joseph Hooker will take the offensive and beat Lee to the punch. Jackson is also, by the late winter and early spring of 1863, one of Lee's few personal friends. Lee had some friends in the Army of Northern Virginia, but it may come as a surprise uh, to many listeners that he had very few. Uh, And Jackson had become one of his close inner circle of friends. And that meant something especially when Jackson will die later. The effect on Lee will be very personal and very profound. The two had a very strong relationship also religiously, which I've already highlighted, and also Jackson and Jeb Stuart were close. They too had a very good uh, friendship that created a second tier of leadership that uh, supported Robert E. Lee in his endeavors. So Stuart, who will be there at Chancellorsville with Jackson, will be able to work very well with him. And the two had worked splendidly together in the Second Manassas uh, and uh, uh, in the uh, Antietam campaigns. And so they know how to work well together. In fact, Jackson knew Stuart from the Valley. They went back a long way. Uh, so this bodes good things for the ultimate Confederate offensive if it can get started. And we can go back now to the slides. So there you see what the Lee-Jackson relationship looked like on 1 May of 1863, the first day of the Battle of Chancellorsville. Very significant that they both wanted to bring the war into the North. Robert E. Lee had started to become hardened towards the North, whom he always referred to as those people, mainly because of the loss of some ancestral homes uh, that the Lees had owned. Arlington, of course, was taken and so was uh, the White House on the Pamunkey River, which is on the Virginia Peninsula, and it was burned during the seven days. Uh, This, as well as a few other events, we believe, hardened Lee towards the Union and made him perhaps more amenable to Jackson's more radical uh, strategic ideas. For the Confederacy, Stonewall Jackson was also highly significant, not just for Robert E. Lee as one of his command team, but also in how the public viewed Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. In many ways, Jackson and Lee were seen as inseparable, as a duo that could never fail, and under whose command the Army of Northern Virginia would march on from victory to victory. The public believed this. His moral character was in no question uh, at all by the Confederate people. Uh, they believed very much that the righteousness of the cause was tied up with Jackson himself. And as long as Jackson served at Lee's side, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia was indeed a righteous army uh, that was fighting for a righteous cause. The public understood on an intrinsic level what Jackson meant to Lee as a battlefield operator and uh, as a tactician. That was very well reported in the press and other historians have made uh, uh, some great uh, analysis of this. He was also viewed as protector of the Valley of Virginia, so particularly in the Shenandoah Valley Jackson was revered because of his great performance uh, in the spring of 1862 in the Valley Campaign that rid it of uh, Uh, at least temporarily, of of Union interlopers. And importantly, Jackson had a strong and rising reputation in the Confederate government. Now this was a surprising thing that I discovered in the course of my research, just how well regarded Jackson was in Richmond. He and Jefferson Davis initially uh, had a rather cool uh, relationship. Um, Davis did not support Jackson uh, during the ill-fated Romney expedition, uh, in which Jackson uh, made some mistakes in the winter of 1862, uh, and uh, Davis uh, supported uh, Judah P. Benjamin, the uh, then Secretary of War against Jackson. Jackson did not forget that, but he did not hold a grudge. By the early spring of 1863, Jackson's significance for the Confederate cause is recognized in Richmond by Davis, uh, by the new Secretary of War, James Seddon, and by practically everybody else. Uh, And it was understood that uh, he also was very involved in suggestions to the Confederate Congress. Uh, One of his former staff members was a member of the Confederate Congress, Alexander R. Bottler. And he sent Bottler several times to Richmond on errands to press his case for topics as diverse as universal conscription, uh, to uh, getting rid of bad generals in the army, finding ways to get get them out, and also uh, how to build a reserve, an actual Confederate reserve. These are all policy suggestions, which indicate that Jackson is thinking at the higher level, not just uh, as an operator and as a tactician. So we can go back to me now, and I'm going to tell you a little bit now, everybody, about what actually ended up happening. So, on the 1st of May, 1863, the Great Chancellorsville Campaign is going to open up, and we know that Robert E. Lee and Jackson will pull a victory from the jaws of defeat in this incredible uh, battle, considered by most historians to be Lee's greatest battle. Outnumbered, over two to one, he is able to uh, defeat Joseph Hooker. Joseph Hooker cooperated, as I insinuated earlier, Uh, by essentially allowing himself to be psychologically defeated as well. But the reason that that occurred, and this is a case study of how well Lee and Jackson worked together, was because Lee and Jackson put their minds together when they realized they had been outflanked operationally and Hooker had 75,000 troops on their left flank pushing towards their camps at Fredericksburg. They put their minds together, And instead of retreating, which is what Joe Hooker expected, they actually went out to meet him. Lee gave complete tactical command to Jackson on that first day of May 1863, and Jackson hit Hooker's lead corps hard, punching them in the nose where and when they were not supposed to be. And Hooker lost his nerve and decided to retreat rather than continue fighting his plan that he had so carefully conceived of Uh, on which many historians believe was a very good plan operationally. He retreats back into the wilderness around Chancellorsville, which was just a large building at the time, uh, not really a village, deep in the Virginia wilderness. Then Lee and Jackson decide to go on another bold idea. The first time in this campaign was to actually meet Hooker aggressively head-on, though they're outnumbered two to one. The second was to split the army and send Jackson and the bulk of the Confederate army around Hooker's right flank, and hit him in the side, in the flank, uh, and push him in, and hopefully cut him off from the fords across the Rappahannock River. That could have precipitated a rout and possibly the destruction of a large section of the Army of the Potomac. It was a risky plan. But Lee and Jackson worked on it together. They thought about it. Lee had the final decision, he was the final arbiter, and he finally decided after two conferences on the night of May 1st, 1863, well, General, you may try it. And that is what he told Jackson uh, at the end of their second conference. And Jackson replied, my troops will uh, move at 4 o'clock. Well, they did not move as soon as that. Uh, Unfortunately, it took him a little longer, and the loss of that daylight that, uh, uh, that ensued ensured that Jackson's attack on the night of May 2nd, 1863, is going to sputter out, mainly because it loses daylight uh, and it is disorganized by uh, various Union defenses, particularly by the Union 11th Corps under Oliver Otis Howard. The significance for our story is that Chancellorsville was Stonewall Jackson's last battle. As he's trying to rally his disorganized triumphant rebels as they're pushing through the dark woods as the sun is going down on that evening. He is accidentally shot by his own men on a reconnaissance in front of his own lines, which was a nasty habit that Jackson had uh, inculcated earlier in the war. And Jackson will be uh, hit in his right arm and in his left hand. He will be carried from the field, but he will be dropped twice from the litter that is carrying him and undergo excruciating pain as he's brought back for his amputation behind Confederate lines. He will survive the amputation, but he will succumb to pneumonia eight days later. The loss was crushing to Robert E. Lee, who was very worried at the time that Jackson wouldn't survive, and then when the news came to him that Jackson had died, uh, he literally wept. The Stoic Lee hardly ever wept in front of anybody, but he wept in this case uh, in his tent, and that is documented from a wartime correspondence. And he is going to lose in Jackson the man with whom he had planned what was going to become the Pennsylvania campaign. Uh, They had begun planning that, as I indicated, in the winter of 62-63, and now that he has won his greatest victory at Chancellorsville, He's taken the uh, theater strategic initiative away from the Union Army, and he is poised now to begin this long-planned second movement into the North. He will not have Jackson with him to help execute. And that is one of the greatest tragedies for the Confederacy, I argue. Indeed, the fate of the Confederacy hung in the balance on that. It wasn't just because Jackson was a good general and fought well, But it was because Lee had planned the entire campaign with Jackson. And now he's gone, and Lee will have to react to the death of Jackson and replace him. Let's go back to the slides for a moment. The top picture shows the cabin uh, at Guinea Station, Virginia, about uh, 15, 20 miles away from Chancellorsville, where Stonewall Jackson was ultimately taken to recover from his amputation and later would die. Uh, The uh, British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, visited that place after World War I. And he walked around its crumbling ruins. And he remarked to all who were with him in his party, uh, it was here that the Southern Confederacy uh, began to die. Uh, Words very similar to that. And I think, indeed, he kind of hit it on the head, because at the time, Jackson's death struck the Southern psyche like a thunderclap. Robert E. Lee was completely broken up. He wrote to his son, Custis, I do not know how to replace him. Uh, He wrote a heartfelt message to his troops in General Orders No. 61 about what the death of Jackson meant. He tried to put a brave face on it, saying that his Spirit may be diffused throughout the army and we will be able to continue to go on. Uh, But privately Lee despaired and particularly, how was he going to replace Jackson at that level, at the core level of command? The southern people also recognized the death of Jackson for what it was and came to understand that with Jackson's loss, Lee was crippled as as a commander, at least temporarily. And through the time uh, of uh, May, the whole way into July, and even uh, August, 1863, southern newspaper editorials were filled with lamentations of Jackson's death. And I will show you some examples of these here very shortly. And it was recognized also in the north and overseas for what it was at the time. A great strategic level contingency point. In many ways, the death of Jackson was for the Confederacy what the, what the death of Lincoln would be for the Union in 1865. It was a national moment of reckoning and a moment of inward reflection and thinking about what the future would hold. The bottom picture shows the great map of Jedediah Hotchkiss, Jackson's mapmaker and staff member who had served in Pennsylvania as a schoolteacher before the war. And you can see the southern counties of Pennsylvania clearly outlined there. Lee and Jackson would have had, therefore, a fairly good map uh, up to the Susquehanna River, had they managed to get into Pennsylvania. Across the Confederacy, the reaction to Jackson's death was nigh catastrophic. Robert E. Lee, I already mentioned, uh, was devastated. In the Army of Northern Virginia, officers and enlisted men were known to say a national calamity had happened. They echoed the President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in that exact phrase. God's will be done, some of them thought and actually wrote uh, rather stoically. And one soldier uh, echoed the thoughts of many others whose letters I read when he wrote, all hopes of peace and independence are vanished forever. Uh, This was actually written many times in several letters in some form or another. Uh, There was a belief that the loss of Jackson was a turning point. In Richmond, government officials called it also a national calamity, and Secretary of War James Seddon said that Jackson's loss was irreparable. In Virginia, the newspapers indicated uh, incredible mourning. He has fallen and a nation weeps, said one prominent Valley newspaper. Uh, In Richmond, uh, all the prominent newspapers echoed this sentiment. In the deep south and in the Carolinas, uh, the mourning was equally as as profound. One newspaper editor said this is the most serious loss we have yet sustained in the war. Uh, The terms national calamity came back many times. Uh, Another newspaper said that Jackson was absolutely invaluable to the cause. And a Texas as far away as Mobile, Alabama said there is universal gloom in our community as a result of the death of General Jackson. In England, the uh, London Times, I believe this quote comes from the Times, said, assuredly, this was the most fatal shot of the war to the Confederates. And in the North, Oliver Otis Howard said, after his death, General Lee could not replace him. Abraham Lincoln also went on record about the death of Jackson and wrote to the editor uh, of the Washington Morning Post, uh, uh, indicating that uh, he appreciated the uh, eulogy that was given in a northern paper about the death of this Confederate general. Rather interesting uh, tidbit. And so now what does this mean in a real sense for Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia on the eve of the Pennsylvania campaign? Well as you can see from this slide there's gonna be a reorganization and From the two-core system of Longstreet and Jackson, with Stewart serving as uh, a member of the great triumvirate, as I call it, we are going to change to a three-core system with Longstreet and two new division commanders who had previously served under Stonewall Jackson, Richard S. Ewell and A.P. Hill, raised to new levels of responsibility to which they were uh, unaccustomed. Yule and Hill had about a week and a half to get used to their new positions of responsibility before the Army of Northern Virginia begins the long march north into Pennsylvania. I argue in the book that's not enough time for any senior leader, then or today, to get accustomed to their new position uh, before having to make climactic decisions. Leaders at all levels and at all times and places often are forced to make decisions when they don't want to, but it's particularly difficult when you don't have enough seasoning time, which Ewell and Hill did not have. The question often arises, well, whose fault was it that they were not prepared for their level? Well, in the case of Richard S. Ewell, he was brought back to the Army after nine months absence in recuperation for a lost leg at Second Manassas. But there was nobody else whom Lee could turn to, in his opinion, who would be worthy to succeed the fallen Jackson in battlefield ability, and in potential ability at the operational level. A.P. Hill had served with Jackson until the very end, and he and Jackson had a rather obstreperous relationship. It didn't go very well, but Hill could be relied upon uh, to do his job. And Lee brings Hill up, but there was no time for Lee or for Jackson to counsel Hill prior to his ascension to command. Uh, There was no time because they were constantly campaigning. And after Jackson is gone, Lee himself only has about uh, a month after uh, the, uh, the Chancellorsville campaign to get his army ready, to reorganize it. And he's busy with a great deal of administration and does not deal with A.P. Hill or Richard Ewell. Uh, there is a possibility he did talk to Ewell about the new level of responsibility he had inherited. Uh, that evidence is somewhat scanty. Uh, we do not think he had time to talk to Hill. So you could argue that Robert E. Lee is to blame for not counseling his new subordinates or that Jackson is to blame for not counseling them prior to his demise, but I think that discounts the the, the actual possibilities open to those two commanders prior to Jackson's death. One thing we know for certain is that the reorganization is going to have dire consequences to what will happen to the Army in Northern Virginia in Pennsylvania. And you can switch it back to me now, please. So, in early June 1863, June 3rd, Robert E. Lee will begin moving the Army of Northern Virginia north. Jackson will not be with him, though he and Jackson had uh, planned this campaign together. And he will have two new, two new Corps commanders at his side, Ewell and Hill, along with the seasoned James Longstreet, who has now come back and has reassumed his position as Lee's right-hand man. When they get into Pennsylvania, Many of our listeners and and viewers will remember that Longstreet perceived that he and Lee had an agreement before they got into the North that they would fight a defensive battle in an offensive theater campaign. Uh, That was not substantiated by Lee after the war uh, in the few years that he survived after 1865. In fact, he said that he could could not believe that there was such a decision made. Uh, Longstreet probably didn't move as well or as quickly as he could have at Gettysburg because of that possible disagreement, even if it was just in his own head. And we know that Ewell and Hill will underperform on the critical first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. But lest anybody misconstrue my intent here, I'm not going to ask the what-if question if Jackson had been at Gettysburg. Instead, I will say that the death of Jackson, Jackson sets into motion a cascade series of events that otherwise would never have occurred if he had lived. And in fact, the great battle at Gettysburg may not have occurred at Gettysburg at all, but would have been somewhere likely further east and or south. How Lee would have decided to reorganize his army, if at all, in the wake of a surviving Jackson is impossible for us to know. But one thing I will say, and I will end with this, is that the entire character of the Civil War and the fate of the Confederacy would have been quite different Thank you very much.
1: All right, Dr. Keller, at this point, we'd probably have a huge round of applause. That was absolutely fantastic uh, discussion. Uh, and I'll tell you, the questions have just been rolling in uh, through our uh, Facebook page uh, and, of course, through, uh, through our... Um uh, through our VES email, our, our USAC email address. So I've got a whole notebook here full of questions, of course, to our listeners out there. Uh, we're, not prob- we're probably not going to be able to get through all the questions, but I've consolidated a few down uh, to some of, the, uh, some of the ones that uh, multiple people have asked. Um, to get started, uh, we'll go with a, a fairly simple one. Uh, did Jackson have a protege? Uh, and there's, a, there's a, a, a codicil to this. If not, do you see that as a failure of leadership?
2: Right, I, I addressed that issue at, near the end of my talk. Uh, he, if he had a protege, it was probably Richard Yule. Uh, but Yule is going to be uh, badly hurt at Second Manassas. He's going to lose his leg there, and he's going to be knocked out of the army for nine months in rehabilitation. Uh, and that means when Yule comes back, uh, he is not used to how the army Northern Virginia has evolved. And uh, he certainly is not used to Jackson not being in it. Uh, He had served well under Jackson in the Valley Campaign of 1862 uh, and had served with Jackson up to Second Manassas uh, and now he is gone. I would say it would would have been Richard Ewell as a possible protege uh, but other than that uh, Jackson did not uh, foster and build subordinates and uh, I do mention in the book, as other authors have, have criticized Jackson on this, for not doing a better job in mentoring subordinates. And we know today, in the modern US uh, military, this is a major consideration uh, as we try to uh, build our soldiers and our officers. Uh, uh, we want very much to be able to have people succeed in times of of, uh, of difficulty when people are, are removed from their positions from uh, whatever cause. Uh, one could perhaps criticize Jackson for this.
1: Another question come through that I, that I think uh, is a good one here. Um, are there any particular instances where uh, Generals Lee and Jackson worked through a disagreement Uh, that you can highlight specifically if you were teaching strategic leaders, members of the public, uh, corporate folks, uh, you know, looking at valuable lessons, maintaining a respectful working relationship, not damaging personal relationships. We know that he had a rough time with A.P. Hill and some others, uh, but what about the Lee Jackson relationship as far as that goes?
2: Uh, That's a great question, and uh, I'm going to give a very simple answer at first and then a little more detail. The simple answer is read my book uh, because – I get into su- substantial detail about that. Uh, Lee didn't always accept Jackson's advice. Uh, in the Shenandoah Valley campaign, for instance, Jackson is pushing very hard to be unleashed into the north after he defeats his final Union foe, uh, and instead Lee orders him east. Uh, there is a cordial disagreement. It's in the uh, official records. You can read it. And uh, in the end, Jackson will acquiesce to Lee's will because he respects Lee's authority and his higher rank. And this would happen several times uh, where Jackson uh, wasn't sure of Lee's plan. Another great example was uh, the detachment of Jackson's uh, divisions to go after Harper's Ferry in the Antietam Campaign. Uh, Jackson initially disagreed with that uh, line of action, and he told Lee this. Uh, but uh, in the end he will defer to Lee's judgment and he went on to execute as Lee wished. So we see in the relationship between Lee and Jackson a subordinate and a superior who have developed this atmosphere of a free exchange of ideas and I can't stress that enough. It's it's an incredible hallmark of their relationship. Lee listened carefully and politely and open-mindedly to what Jackson had to say uh, throughout this year that they're working together and in return Jackson would provide frank, solid, best advice and if it was rejected he would still move out on what his commander asked him to do.
1: Questions rolling in here Dr. Keller, Uh, let me go with this one uh, uh, a little bit of a long one from uh, from the emails um, going back to that uh, that winter spring of uh, of sixty three, we have a, a sick and dying uh, Stonewall Jackson, two new corps commanders, uh, Longstreet feeling out of the loop while he was away, um, and then uh, the the, uh, the correspondent here, uh, at, you know, uh, making a note about. Uh, Longstreet feeling as Lee did not want to listen to him at Gettysburg, and, of course, Stewart having his issues with the loss of Jackson. You went over that quite a bit, uh, but this gets more into the question of Gettysburg. Do you feel that Lee was shaded by the ghost of Jackson in terms of his uh, decisions during the Pennsylvania campaign? Um, uh, And why was he so on the offensive at Gettysburg? Do you feel that this was uh, uh, kind of uh, Jackson's ghost in Lee's mind at Gettysburg?
2: That's a fascinating question, and I've wrestled with that since about age ten. Um, the, the, the The short answer to that excellent question is there's no question that Lee struggled under the shadow and the ghost of Jackson's absence in the Pennsylvania campaign. I get into this in, into a considerable degree in my final chapter, and I would urge, listeners to take a look at that and how I piece through what the trickle-down effects, the second and third order effects, as we say, uh, actually were for Lee, not just as he's planning the campaign, not just as he's moving north, but also then in execution. And there's no question uh, that Lee has not yet adjusted his command style, which is very mission command oriented, as we would call it today, a very intent-based command style in which all he had to do was just say what he generally wanted done, and Jackson would do it. Uh, Longstreet could do it also to some degree, as could Stuart. Lee had that relationship with his great triumvirate, the command team that he had carefully built uh, after the seven days. With Jackson's death, the command team is shattered. Longstreet now is trying to fill several pairs of shoes, I would argue, and is overassuming his importance to Lee, perhaps which could lead to some friction in the Pennsylvania campaign, as I alluded. And most importantly, Lee didn't have time to adjust, and I'm not making an excuse for him. I don't think he, he would have had time, uh, even if he'd had a month, to get used to the reality of Jackson's absence and what that meant for how he had to give his orders. Uh, Ewell and Hill were used to getting Jackson-type orders, particularly Hill, who had been with Jackson most recently, Uh, which were very punctilious, very direct, very specific, and if you didn't do it the way Jackson wanted you to do it, then you got put up on a court-martial, which is what happened to Hill twice. Uh, And Robert E. Lee is going to issue his more discretionary intent-based orders at Gettysburg, and it's going to get him into trouble on the first day in particular. Uh, With Richard Yule, he sends the message twice to attack uh, Cemetery Hill. Yule decides it's not practicable to do so, as uh, many of you know. Uh, And uh, there are many reasons behind Ewell's decision-making we don't have time to get into, but I think Lee did not adjust uh, uh, in time for the climactic uh, Gettysburg campaign. He just didn't have time to adjust his command style. Um, So in that way, he's definitely struggling with the shadow of Jackson.
1: Dr. Keller, we've got uh, probably about six different questions that all kind of uh, wrap around the same same, uh, concept here. You mentioned several different times uh, Jackson as a corps commander. Uh, What is your opinion on Stonewall Jackson as a corps commander versus a possible army commander? I know we're looking at a little more speculation there, uh, but was Jackson at his top rung as a corps commander, or what do you think about army command for him?
2: Mm, Another good question. I believe that Jackson would have wanted to stay underneath the command of Robert E. Lee. Because before he died, uh, there is historical evidence in in letters uh, that he wrote uh, to his wife, and in correspondence uh, uh, that survives from the war from his uh, staff officers, uh, that he did not want to leave Lee's side. He did not even want to accept independent command in the Valley of Virginia. He, He was interested in maybe getting that because he wanted to go back to the Valley. He loved the valley, and he wanted to be there, but he also wanted to stay by Lee's side. I don't think that is just because he professionally respected Robert E. Lee. I think it's because he and Lee were friends, and he knew that Lee needed him. And he believed very clearly that his place was with his commanding general. Uh, I doubt very much that he would have lobbied for nor wanted a detached command of his own, uh, unlike James Longstreet, who we know definitely did. He wanted that from the very beginning and ultimately will get it twice uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the Suffolk campaign, which is what he was doing during Chancellorsville, and then later uh, when he goes uh, down to reinforce Braxton Bragg and, and then ends up in, in uh, Knoxville. Uh, Longstreet finally got his independent commands. He always wanted those. Jackson did not. And I don't think uh, Jackson would have also made a really good, big army commander. I think he always was good at commanding a core level or less. Uh, I think if he had gone over 40,000 men, it might have been too much for him. Uh, That's just my personal opinion based on my research. Uh, In fact, he wanted 40,000 men when he was requesting reinforcements to get into Pennsylvania in 1862. That was the number he used. I don't think he would have wanted an army bigger than that.
1: All right, uh, Dr. Keller, we have time for one more question, and again, I'm gonna take the liberty here to wrap a few different questions uh, on the, along the same theme uh, into one. Let's look a little bit further out than just than, uh, than the immediate aftermath of Stonewall Jackson's death. Uh, we often focus on the leader mentoring uh, and the developing of subordinates. Let's look at Robert E. Lee, uh, in that continuation of mentorship and development. These new corps commanders um, that, uh, that make it through Gettysburg uh, and into the, the following campaigns uh, later on in the war, uh, what do you see as Lee, uh, what does Lee do to help mentor and develop them upwards and does Jackson's legacy have any effect on that?
2: Walter Taylor, who was one of Lee's chief aides, a name familiar to some of our viewers probably, wrote during 1864, during the Overland campaign against U.S. Grant, "O oh, for a Jackson, we have a very good general to plan and to command us, but we don't have enough to actually execute his wishes fast enough. Uh, that's almost an exact quote from Walter Taylor, who was very close to Lee in proximity throughout the entire war and knew him very well. Uh, And so I think that quote encapsulates the loss of Jackson and its significance to Lee's command team after uh, the campaign of Chancellorsville. It not only affects the Pennsylvania campaign, and I I argue in the book that was very important because that was uh, the last great chance, I think, that the Confederacy had to win its independence on the battlefield, as opposed to a political solution if they had managed to uh, uh, stall uh, the advances of the Union armies prior to uh, the 1864 election. Two different ways of winning there. Uh, once the Gettysburg opportunity passes, then the enemy gets a vote. And so to answer your question further, I would add this. Uh, Yule never gets any better. Uh, he, he is not much better in the wilderness. And Lee goes down on record after the war when he's president of Washington College, my alma mater, I might add, uh, Washington and Lee, uh, he goes down on record uh, in an interview saying that Ewell was slow in the wilderness. Uh, he also went down on record saying Longstreet was often slow. Well, what happens in the wilderness and in the overland campaign in general, is Ewell greatly underperforms and is ultimately removed by Robert E. Lee and sent packing to Richmond. Longstreet is very badly wounded at the end of the Wilderness Battle and is knocked out of action till halfway through the Petersburg Siege. And Jeb Stuart is killed at the Cavalry Battle of Yellow Tavern, uh, concurrent with the Spotsylvania camp- campaign, which was part of the Greater Overland campaign. Lee's command team is shattered. It's gone by the time he gets to Cold Harbor in the beginning of the Petersburg Siege. He, therefore, doesn't have anybody else in his bench that he can raise up. Now, it's, he's going to get a couple people that will be approaching the acumen of Longstreet and Jackson and Stewart, uh, but not in time. And in the end, it's not going to be enough. Uh, add to that the fact that the Yankees had something to do with it, as George Pickett uh, once quipped, and I think that you've got your answer. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant is not Joe Hooker. He is not even George Meade. He kept Meade on a tight leash, as many of you know. Uh, and so we see with, uh, with the, the federal adversary an unrelenting pressure, which does not give Lee any breathing space.
1: All right. Sir, I would ha- we would have a standing ovation, I'm sure. I'm sure that all of our uh, listeners are in their living rooms right now. Uh, uh, applauding uh, such a wonderful uh, uh, program tonight. Uh, Dr. Keller, we very much appreciate you coming in. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, everyone out there in the internet world, thank you for joining us tonight. We look forward to further online events with you. Uh, Please keep an eye out on our social media pages and the events tab on our website uh, to learn more about our upcoming events. Thank
0: you, please stay healthy, and good evening. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.